Welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. I'd like us to read together from Ephesians 3 this morning, just before the message, um, or in preparation for the message. Verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasseth knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Good to be together again this morning as we come to God's word. We're going to open again there in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, and the title this morning, The Riches of His Grace. The Riches of His Grace. <clears throat> the last time at the end of verse 7, we saw the result of our redemption, and that is that we have been forgiven of our sins through Christ's sacrificial offering of Himself on the cross for us. Uh, verse 7 says, In Him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Well, some people have the idea that God is so loving and kind that, of course, he forgives us of our sins. But the reality is God cannot forgive sins on the basis of his love. Uh, that may sound strange, but his love may move him to act on our behalf, but his love alone is not enough. Sin had to be atoned for, and in the, the, the righteous judgment of God upon sin was satisfied in Christ. It was satisfied in his, uh, in his death for us on the cross. He is, as we learned last time, our propitiation for our sins. He is the, the satisfaction of God's holy and righteous uh, judgment. Uh, so, some may also even think that um, we deserve to be forgiven. And after all, they may say, well, I'm not really all that bad. <laughs> and, uh, of course, they're comparing themselves with others around them. And, and, and as they compare themselves with other people, they say, well, I'm doing pretty good. An unsaved person could even be comparing himself to a believer and thinking, well, I'm just as good or maybe better than they are. But we know that um, others are, are not the standard. It's God's word is the standard of righteousness, and God himself is the standard of righteousness. And so when we begin to compare ourselves to God's word, then we realize that the testimony of Scripture is clear, that we are all guilty and uh, worthy of the judgment of God. And that judgment is an eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. Some may even uh, doubt that God is a, uh, a wrathful God, that God is angry or he has wrath 
against those who reject Christ. And as we reminded of John chapter 3 and uh, verse 36, which says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And he says, whoever does not obey the Son. In other words, just the opposite. The opposite of, of believing is not obeying the Son. He says, he shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. It doesn't say the wrath of God will come upon him in one, when he dies. No, the wrath of God remains. And so this is the, is the reality of a holy God that can only be propitiated, can only be satisfied with the offering of Christ on our behalf. Uh, the more we learn of God's holiness and who he is, the better we can perceive our own unholiness and our own sinfulness. And the more apparent the riches of God's grace become to us. When in our text in uh, verses 6 to 8, Paul can't say enough about the grace of God. Let's read again this, this portion chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. He says, To the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us, or graced us, in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Father, this morning, as we come to your word, I pray that you would help us, help us, Lord, to uh, open our hearts and minds to your word, allowing the Spirit of God to teach us, to admonish us, to encourage us, and all that you desire this morning, Father, for our hearts. I pray, Lord, you'd help us to uh, have a better comprehension of the, the wealth, the, the riches, Lord, of your grace toward us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. How much have we been forgiven? What is the measure of the forgiveness of our sins in Christ? Paul says in this text that it's not out of the, God's wealth, but according to God's wealth. He writes, according to the riches of His grace. I want to think about that a little bit this morning, the riches of God's grace. This word was used to describe someone whose wealth was abundant, who was, whose wealth was above the norm of uh, their society. When we think about God, we realize that God's wealth or God's riches are infinite. Uh, it cannot be measured. Let's say, for example, that we went to a, a very wealthy person and we asked for a donation for some, some calls or uh, some fundraising uh, project that we had. You could take this arts theater for an example. They were uh, long ago in advertising in the paper about their need and trying to raise 100,000 rand uh, to, to help. And let's say this uh, wealthy person gave 100 rand towards uh, this need. Well, they would be giving out of their wealth, wouldn't they? It, w- it would hardly be missed. You could hardly even recognize that it was gone. But let's say that person gave the full 100,000 to, um, to meet the debt, and then also another 100,000 just for the, the needs that were going to be coming uh, in the future. Well, he would be giving according to his wealth. And, and that's what God does for us. 
he gives according to his wealth, out of, not just out of, but according to his riches. Regardless of how great our sins are, God in his grace, God's grace and redemption is sufficient. In fact, we could say his grace uh, abounds all the more. And that's what the scriptures teach us. Romans 5, uh, verse 20 and 21, you see there, it says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. And what he's referring to is the fact that with the, with the word of God, God's law, it condemns us because we can't keep the law. We can't live up to the standard of God's word. And so therefore, our, our sins uh, increased. We became more guilty because we now know more of God's righteousness and God's standard. And so it increased. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, grace wins. For those who put their faith and trust in Christ, grace wins. Grace reigns in life over death. The knowledge of God's law makes every, uh, every man more guilty. It makes us more aware of our sin. And when that person turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, trusting in His finished work on the cross, uh, we are forgiven. God's grace is sufficient. It's more than sufficient. It is super abundant. And that's literally the word we have here in our text, this super abundance. Ephesians 1 again, verse 7 and 8, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. The word translated lavished is, is abundant or super abundant. It's, it's the word that was used of um, what the Lord did with, the, with the, the loaves and fishes, you remember. How did he multiply this boy's lunch? And the multitudes ate, and when they gathered up what was left over, there was more than what he began with. And, and if there had been a thousand more people, it would still have been more than enough. And that's what grace is to us. It abounds to us. It is more than sufficient. One author writes, God's grace towards us is not squeezed out from an eyedropper or carefully rationed like water during a drought. His grace is a Niagara of superabundance, so lavished that we marvel at its display. Well, that reference there to a Niagara of superabundance is, is, is referring to Niagara Falls. They're on the Canadian border. If, if he had been a, an African, he probably would have said a, uh, a Victoria Falls of superabundance. Uh, I read that the, uh, the Victoria Falls is the, considered to be the, the largest in the world. And uh, with a, um, an average volume of water during the rainy season of a half a, a million liters per minute. I can't, it's kind of hard to, hard to imagine. Half a million liters per minute. That's something to marvel at. And, 
but yet it's nothing in comparison to the superabundance of God's grace towards sinners. Sinners that Paul would later describe in chapter 2 as dead in trespasses and sin, and by nature, children of wrath. You see, God's grace is not only displayed in His plan of redemption to forgive us and to save us, but but it's also uh, displayed in His grace to enable us and empower us for sanctification and service. And Paul alludes to that in the end of verse 8. Part of that grace uh, that we receive as believers is for uh, living for the Lord, serving the Lord. It's an enablement. It's an empowerment. Uh, He says, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Well, Scripture has a a good deal to say about wisdom. You uh, go and read from Psalms and Proverbs. Those are considered uh, wisdom literature. And uh, the the Proverbs, we, we see many sayings about wisdom and the opposite of wisdom and uh, of foolishness. The fool have said in his heart, there is no God. And wisdom admonishes us to um, obey the Lord and warns us. Uh, man uh, does what's right in his, own, in his own mind, in his own heart, but the end thereof, the ways of death. So we have those kind of, of wisdom sayings. And usually the, the wisdom of the world, that which seems to be wise according to the unbeliever, is usually in conflict with God's wisdom. And that reality shouldn't surprise us. We shouldn't be surprised when, uh, when people think that we're foolish for believing the Bible, foolish for trusting in Christ for salvation, foolish for uh, not, just, not just saying, yeah, I believe the Bible, but I mean really believing the Bible making the Bible our authority for life and, and for living and, and, and doing everything we do around the principles of God's Word. The world considers that to be foolish. In uh, 1 Corinthians 18, before you hear on the text, 1 Corinthians, uh, ch- sorry, chapter 1, verse 18 uh, through 21, it's just a section here that Paul writes concerning this contrast. He says, for the, world, uh, sorry, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. In other words, the word of the cross is the, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of our redemption that we've been learning about and studying about. The, the, uh, the fact that Christ died for us and He redeemed us out of our sin and judgment says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then he quotes in verse 19 from Isaiah 29, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This message of the gospel is, uh, is folly to the world. It's foolishness to the world. And yet, for us who have believed, it is the power of God unto salvation. 
You see, you don't find God in a philosophy class. You don't go to the, to the wise of this world to learn about God or to, or to find God. God is found in the revelation of His Word. And the Spirit of God is, comes and, and illumines our minds and our hearts and convicts us of our need for a Savior. He says in our text that um, um, the riches of God's grace are poured out to us in wisdom and insight. And this wisdom of God, it enables us to, uh, to have spiritual understanding about the things of God. And God is constantly helping us. Every time we, we open God's Word to read it, the Spirit of God is, is, is gracing us with, with help, with wisdom, with, with enablement to understand Him. And, and yet, we can't understand everything that God has revealed. There's some things that remain hidden to us, or we can't fully comprehend how God does what He says He does. And, and so we have to put our faith and trust in Him to do what He says he will do and God will and when we submit to him God will give us grace to do that as well because we don't we don't serve God and live for God according to our own wisdom if we if we think we must figure everything out before we can obey or believe then we're going to be headed down the wrong path we're going to be headed for trouble there's uh this life that we live is a life of faith it's not a blind faith it's not like jumping into the dark with our eyes closed, it is a faith that uh, is is based upon truths that God has revealed and demonstrated. It's, it is a reasonable faith, and yet it is a life of faith. It must depend upon the grace of God and the, the veracity of God. What He said is true. We also are given insight, He says. He pours His grace out to us in insight. Insight is the, is the particular application of wisdom. So that when we, when we walk with Him in obedience, He gives us the practical wisdom needed in living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. So God's grace is, is not only abundant in His plan of redemption, but also in the application of the redemptive purposes that He has for us in Christ. And one day that plan, that purpose will be finished in our life. And so between now and then, God's given us wisdom and insight that we can live for him that we can serve him we can obey him well what what should be then the the response of our hearts in our in our text we we see this this emphasis upon the superabundance of god's grace towards us in redemption how should we respond to such riches such wealth of grace well paul would say it like this in 2 corinthians 5 and i'm paraphrasing a bit, he says that since Christ died for us and we as believers are identified with Him in His death and resurrection, we who live should, should no longer live for ourselves, but for Him who died for us and was risen again for us. And so this life that we live then is to be lived to please Him, to honor Him, and not just to please ourselves. But the wonderful thing is God doesn't save us and then just leave us to fend for ourselves, to do the best we can. No, we live and walk with Him and empowered by His grace. His grace is abundant in our redemption, our salvation, but it's also abundant in our sanctification. 
as he enables us, as he helps us, as he empowers us to live for him. Let's pray together. Father, what a joy it is to, uh, to know that we are in your hands. To know, Father, that according to your grace, you've saved us through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we praise you for, for that truth. And as we marvel, Lord, at the riches of your grace, may it motivate us, Lord, to live for you, to serve you, to obey you and honor you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, what you've done for us. May it be reflected in our lives, Lord, as we uh, live day to day in all of our troubles and trials and temptations. Lord, may we walk with you empowered through your grace. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. We want to come to the, the, the Lord's table, the communion. I want us to think a little bit as we come to this time of remembrance about our redemption. We've been looking at that in this passage, the fact that God planned it before creation, and that as you think back to what he has revealed to us from creation, uh, what he um, has taught us as progressively through the scriptures, we see the promise and the covenant made to Abraham of his plan, not only for Abraham and the nation of Israel, but for those who would believe in the seed, the, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that would come, now that we've become partakers of this new covenant that was later fleshed out a little bit more and described by the prophets, the Lord in all of that was preparing the way for the coming of Christ, our Redeemer. We see the types, the symbols, and the offerings and the law. Uh, we see the prophets as they spoke, and we learn more of God, who He is, His holiness, His character, His compassion, and His wrath. We, we learn more of the very nature of God. And we see the Lord Jesus Christ coming and revealing to us the Father and coming as the Word of God in flesh. We see Him on a mission. He's on a divine timetable. He's coming to die for us. Matthew 20 and verse 28 says, Jesus, He's saying, He's speaking of Himself, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Ransom that we learned about last time, the payment, the price was paid so that we could be forgiven. And when he, when he was on the cross, just before his death, he cries out, Tetelestai, which means it is finished. And he wasn't just saying the crucifixion is finished, or that he wasn't just saying I'm now dead or dying. No, he's... He's saying the redemptive work that was planned by the Father before the foundation of the world, it is finished. It's complete. It is, it is done. This word was also used in the culture, in the, in the secular uh, culture, or the use of the, of the language, the Greek language, of a debt. Uh, when, when, when a debt was paid off in full, they would write on that certificate to telestai which meant paid in full. We, we have things like that too, where they're stamped with uh, paid or paid in full, tetelestai. And that really speaks to the reality that when Christ died, the, the sin of our debt was paid, paid in full because of his offering, 
that he made for us. It satisfied the judgment of God upon our sin. When we come to faith in Christ to believe him, that is applied to us, paid in full. It is finished. It is paid. Tetelestai. And so that is what the Lord wants us to remember at this time. When we come uh, to the Lord's table, to communion. In, in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is, is instructing the church there. He's really uh, admonishing them because of their mishandling of the sacredness of, of what this um, memorial is about. And it is a memorial. It's a, it's a remembrance. He he repeats, do this in remembrance of me. To, to make it more than a, a remembrance is to confound what Christ did for us, is to confuse what Christ did on the cross for us, as if we could somehow add to that by a sacrament, uh, that, that somehow we could contribute to what God has done when he said it is finished, but maybe it's not really completely finished for us. So somehow f- trusting him is not enough. We need to do this and we need to do that and we need to remember that and partake in this. No, it is a memorial. It is, is, we're not adding to what Christ did. We're rejoicing in what Christ did. We're remembering what Christ did. We're allowing that to, to, to impact our minds and our thinking and our living. In 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on that night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And it is a, it is a, a holy time, a sacred time, a time that uh, we should, as we think about the Lord and what he did for us, it's not to be taken lightly. The church at Corinth had um, evidently fallen into a routine of uh, having a meal and, and then having this memorial, and, and they'd lost the purpose of it. They, they were coming with disregard for each other, selfishly, those that had food, eating the food and not leaving for anyone else. They were having all of these problems that Paul's dealing with in this letter between each other. And Paul says, verse 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. In other words, this unworthy manner was the way in which they were conducting themselves towards each other and the memorial time together. And he goes on to, um, to admonish them, verse 29, for, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. And, and I, I, I think here that Paul has a twofold idea in mind here, because obviously we should be thinking about the body of Christ, and that's what the memorial's about. We remember him. But as Paul is prone to do, he refers to the church as the body. Uh, and he'd already made this connection in chapter 11 between, um, or, or sorry, in chapter 10, between the, the body of the Lord, communion, and that memorial, and the body of believers. So if you have your Bibles, we'll turn back there in chapter 10. In this context, he's, he's talking to them about how inappropriate it is for them to be partaking of idol um, worship uh, type ceremonies, going into those places. 
And, and might I add, there's certain things in this world that's not appropriate for us as believers. There's certain things and certain places that by the nature of how they're used and what they represent, we should stay away from. I mean, that shouldn't have to be said, but it needs to be said. We should be discerning of who we are as people who've been set apart for God and what that means. Notice what he says in this context to them. He's talking to them and reasoning with them about how that they can't, can't partake, have communion. And the word he's using in this context is uh, koinonia, it's fellowship. In other words, we don't, have a, we don't have fellowship with the world. We don't have fellowship with idol worship and things of the world. We have fellowship with the Lord. And that's the point he's going to make in this context. Notice what he says, verse 14, it's chapter 10. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Now he's referring to the, to the communion. It's like we're partaking today. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation? There's the word, fellowship, the koinonia. Is it not participation in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? In other words, there's, an, a, there's a communion in this. As we, as we receive this bread, we're thinking about Him. We're thinking about the fact that we're in Christ. We have communion with Him. And so as we partake, we're reminded of that fellowship that we have with Him. And he, and he goes on to say, Verse 17, because there is one bread, talking about the one Christ, the one body, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. You see what he's doing? He says, because we have fellowship with one Lord, the one body that was broken for us or given for us, then we have this one communion we share together. Because we all partake of Him. Because we all partake of Him, we are all one. And so he's using this analogy of the body as he does in other places to talk about this uh, fellowship that we have with each other. And that was really at the heart of the problem at Corinth, that there, there wasn't this oneness in the body of Christ, in the church. There was divisions and arguing and uh, all kinds of uh, things that were going on. And those are not foreign to us as in our day. We all have the same kinds of problems, the same kinds of attitudes, the same kinds of difficulties, uh, difficulties with each other within our own homes even, between couples and children and parents and between uh, our brothers and sisters of Christ and the body of Christ is often divided in, in little ways and big ways. We we get our feelings hurt and we're not willing to forgive and we don't allow love to cover sin and we don't, we're not willing to resolve you know, hurts and, and disappointments and all of those things. And so Paul admonishes us to examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. Come to this time realizing the oneness that we have in Christ and if there's uh, things that need to be confessed, things that need to be forgiven, relationships that need to be mended, then we're admonished to uh, not leave that, not let that go undone, but to come to this time recognizing the price that was paid so that we could be one, so that we could be a family of God. And so he says to us, as oft as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Father, what, a, what incredible 
truth it is that you died for us. We think about your wealth, the wealth of your grace, the riches of your grace that was demonstrated on the cross for us, demonstrated in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we rejoice in your grace. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to walk in your grace and in the power and the power and the enablement that you give us day by day. And so, fathers, we take this uh, bread. We remember, remember what you did for us, giving of yourself. And Lord, we also want to remember that we are one body together in Christ. Amen. Let's receive together. In like manner, he took the, uh, the cup, which was part of their Passover meal, and he used that to create a new memorial, one that flowed out of the type of the Passover. The Passover was also a memorial. It was something that Israelites were to do so they would remember their deliverance, their redemption out of the bondage in Egypt. And the Lord took that and created for us a new memorial, one that's more powerful because it's based upon the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption that he won for us, delivering us out of our bondage of sin and death. And so as we receive together, we're remembering the basis of our salvation is it's the, the blood of Christ. Let's receive together. Let's stand and rejoice together. Lead him be no work of mine. May take, dear Lord, the place of thine. I shall stand complete in thee. Ye justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath barred and bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Complete in thee, each one supplied, and no good Since thou my portion, Lord, will be, I ask no more, complete in thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath bought and bought for me, and glorified I too shall be. Complete in thee, no more shall sin. Thy grace hath conquered, reign within. Thy blood shall bid the tempter flee, and I shall stand complete in thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath Glorified, I too shall be. Dear Savior, when before thy bar all tribes and tongues assemble are, among the chosen I shall be at thy right hand, complete in thee. Yea, justified, O blessed thought, and sanctified salvation wrought. Thy blood hath barred and bought for me, 
glorified, I too shall be. Thank you. Please be seated.